Welcome to You in the Ring on CFUB 11.9 FM, Victoria. CFUB.uvic.ca on the internet. My name is Colin, and I'm here with co-host Amy Reiswig. And we're guest hosting today on You in the Ring to feature the Wordstaw Symposium that the Malahat Review is holding all day on March the 23rd. For more information about the Malahat Review, you can visit www.malahatreview.ca. And our guests today to talk about the panels that are part of the symposium are John Gould regarding the fiction panel, Rona McAdam regarding the food panel, and Sarah Cassidy regarding the writers on poverty panel. My co-host, Amy Reiswig, is a Montreal-born text addict, currently employed as a senior editor at the Legislative Assembly of BC and author of Coastlines, that column for Victoria's Focus magazine. Her column about Wordstaw appears in the March 2013 issue of Focus, available at www.focusonline.ca, and she'll be the moderator for the fiction panel at Wordstaw. She has roamed the freelance range, writing book reviews for Quill Inquire, the Danforth Review, and the Malahat Review, as well as publishing non-fiction in the Walrus, Hutney Reader, and this magazine. More recently, she has also undertaken bigger projects as the proofreader for Monique Gray-Smith's book, Hope, Faith, and Empathy, and as the Associate Editor for Raincoast Conservation Foundation Canada's Raincoast at Risk, Art for an Oil-Free Coast. To clear her head from the text, Amy plays percussion in the nerdy early music group Banquo Folk Ensemble. Now here's Amy with our first guest. Thanks, Colin. I know Moxie Frivis says, you know, that want to go out dancing versus staying home and reading. I like to think that readers and writers can do both. And I like the fact that the word symposium comes from the ancient languages referring to together and drinking, and that it's reflecting the classical thinker's fondness for mixing wine with intellectual discussion. Nice. So I don't think we're going to... That'll work nicely for our morning panel. I was going to say, I don't necessarily (laughs) think we'll be doing that at 10 in the morning, but I'd like to think of the symposium as imbibing the wine of each other's thoughts as an icebreaker. Beautiful. So the first panel of the day will be Zoom In, Zoom Out, Focus on Fiction. And the topic we'll be looking at from 10 a.m. to noon is the question of what makes fiction relevant. Does it need to expose the broader world through social historical commentary, or can it be equally relevant by shedding light on characters' inner worlds? We'll be soaking up the thoughts of local first-time book publishers Yasuko Tan and Daniel Griffin, as well as veteran short story writer and novelist John Gould, who is here with us today. So, John, you're a writer, a creative writing teacher, a Giller Prize finalist, but you've also worked as an environmental researcher, a tree planter, and a carpenter. You have a background in philosophy and environmental studies. Why on earth do you write fiction? <laughs> but I've never been in a nerdy band, which I really wish I could put on my resume. That's an <laughs> awesome touch on yours. Why did I go from all that to writing fiction? It's interesting, especially the move from uh, when I came out of school, I did research in environmental studies. And I was always passionate about the environment, about wilderness. And so that was a fairly radical move for me then to turn to writing fiction. On Um, all those trees, all that paper. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's right, yes. Well, I try to do my bit by not selling many books. (laughs) So (laughs) I think I'm holding up my end environmentally that way. (laughs) Um, My publisher will love that. So it's a tough call. It was a radical shift for me and startling for my parents who imagined me a scientist of some kind. That seemed to have been my event. And 
from my father, I'm descended from kind of sort of mathematical thinkers, and I think they saw that as a direction for me. From my mother, I'm descended from, uh, she's an English teacher, descended from book people, journalists, and so on. So, I mean, part of the explanation is just, is, as I suppose, um, I can fall back on a genetic kind of argument. And in fact, the forms of writing that I've done make really good sense. One of my passions is the very short story, which nicely combines kind of the lust for concision that the mathematician has Mm. with the passion for story that the journalist has. They're mostly journalists on my mother's side of the family. And I guess I continue to consider like uh, an engagement with environmental issues part of my public, my civic duty, part of my public life. And I'm jump up and down both those issues and mm-hmm. try to be uh, a decent citizen in that sense. But I realized at a certain point, and I can't really identify it, it just happened, I suddenly found myself thinking of myself as a writer instead. Hadn't studied English, hadn't studied writing, had really no preparation for it, overnight reconceived myself in that way, and it wasn't really a decision, it was just something that happened. And I guess I had always had a balance in my life between an engagement with the world around me and with private practice. I was really interested mm-hmm. in sort of um, yoga and stuff when I was young, like personal spiritual pursuits. And in some way that transformed in me into this passion for writing. So that private sort of agenda in some way trumped that public role. I think I partly realized I wasn't cut out for it. Uh, it takes a very special temperament to be able to... I was very distressed by and continue to be by what's happening to the natural world. Mm-hmm. And it takes a very special temperament to stay as angry as you should be about that, but still be sane one day to the next. And still and enjoy I realized, your life, yeah. yeah, and I realized that wasn't me. Yeah. So you said, and you quoted, that the philosopher Richard Rorty distinguishes between books which help us become autonomous and books which help us become less cruel. Books fueling self-creation and books fueling social responsibility. How do you feel that your work falls in those two ideas. Right. Do they have to be separate or do individual works do both? Right. Where do you see your work falling and that continuum? Excuse me right for quoting a philosopher. <laughs> I'm, I'm way over my head already. <laughs> but Rorty is a philosopher whom I find interesting and he, in his book, Irony, Contingency and Solidarity, he kind of tackles this notion of the public and the private and kind of argues that metaphysically minded philosophers have tried to find a way of lumping the two together, mm. having a single language that describes both. And he argues against that. He says that's a mistake and these should be allowed to be separate aspects of our lives and separate aspects of our language. I like to think of that distinction a little bit more in terms of a starting point mm. rather than an end point, partly because I see things from the perspective of a reader, but also from the perspective of a writer. So I think as writers, we, we differ in temperament. We have different ways into the work that we do. Some writers, for instance, start with a fairly kind of conceptual notion of what they plan, their interest. They see a mm. sort of pattern, and they sort of press that pattern down into some fictional context. Other writers, and I'm more of that faction myself, other writers start from a very kind of visceral, sensual perception, a moment, like a a word spoken or a scent or something, and or a particular notion of character, and sort of build up from there and watch for the sort of ideas 
to lift out of that engagement with the sensual. So in that same kind of way, I think you could think about writers coming at those two categories of books that Rorty's talking about, Mm -hmm. those two projects for literature that Rorty is talking about. I think you could consider that some writers start at one end or the other, but probably are drawn more. I, I, my first engagement with work tends to be at the level of the aesthetic more Mm -hmm. than the sort of social justice aspect of writing. But I hope that my craft then leads me to an increasing engagement with those issues, which are important to me. And, you know, the idea of aesthetics is not irrelevant to society either, I hope. No, no, not at all. So I was wondering... You know, as you said, maybe being a writer wasn't your parents' first choice for you. Do you feel that as a fiction writer, you find yourself having to defend that life choice? And is a panel like this, is that us standing up and defending Mm. fiction, or is it really celebrating all the different things that it can do? I think in the context of our panel, we'll be celebrating because, you know, we're fiction writers and speaking to what I imagine to be a somewhat sympathetic audience. But maybe the ideas that we explore will be useful to us and hopefully to members of the audience as they try to articulate why they're impassioned about writing fiction and if they feel they need to defend themselves. I think mostly fiction writers probably don't. They just carry on doing what they're doing and imagine that their work will find its way or not in the world. But there is, you know, the kind of I think it was Margaret Atwood who said that there's one word that should always appear with quotation marks around it, and that's the word reality. Mm. And I think fiction writers are very aware of that and see some irony in the kind of uh, focus on a nonfiction way of trying to think about the world. On the other hand, I think sophisticated nonfiction writers are aware of that too. They see those same quotation marks. And in fact, one of the reasons I think nonfiction writing continues to get more and more interesting is that increasingly it avails itself of the kind of narrative strategies that fiction writers use as well. So I think the distinctions between the two are breaking down in all kinds of interesting ways. Mm -hmm. People would ask me, why are you studying English literature? I always said, well, it's one of the few disciplines that actually teaches empathy Uh and compassion. Yeah. Whether it's a book about a historical social issue or about individual characters and their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great way of articulating something that both of those fictional projects have in common. And it's certainly, I I suppose, if one had to put forward a single argument for the importance of fiction nowadays, you could argue that the act of empathy, the act of compassion, the ability to see beyond any kind of us-and-them dichotomy just gets more and more imperative as time goes on because the cost to us of not understanding one another just gets worse and worse. And I think it's true. I think fiction does do that. I think fiction does exercise. Empathy isn't something that comes automatically to human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, when you watch little kids, they don't entirely understand that other little children and other adults experience the world that their inner life is as vivid and as vulnerable and as enhanced, you know, and experienced a pain as their own is. That's something that we learn. And I think fiction is one of the things that keeps expanding that capacity in us. And imagination. I mean, the world is less and less constant. The world changes more and more. So I can study up on how the world works today, and it won't work that way tomorrow. And what allows us to keep adapting, Mm. keep seeing how the world is changing and adapt ourselves to it. Imagination is a hugely sort of adaptive capacity that human beings have. We can imagine the cougar behind that rock, right? And we can imagine, we can go through in our minds a number of 
ways that we might escape. Mm. And I think in a really concrete way, that is a huge kind of adaptive advantage to humans. And the need for that advantage is getting more and more intense as the dangers we face get more intense. Mm -hmm. And one of those dangers, as we're going to see with our next guest, Rona McAdam, is food security. Yeah. So it's true. The cost of not collaborating gets bigger and bigger, and that's what the symposium is all about. Yeah. So thank you, yeah. John, for sharing your thoughts yeah, with us today. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amy. You're welcome. Thanks. So I've still got the idea of drinking wine and sharing intellectual discussion in my head. And what goes so well with a good glass of wine? Why, some good local food, of course, which is the subject of Wordstaw's second panel called A Sustainable Feast, The New Food Writing, moderated by Vancouver's Don Genova. And someone who knows all about feasting and writing is panelist Rona McAdam, author of Digging the City, an Urban Agriculture Manifesto, as well as numerous food writing and farming articles. She also writes a food and poetry blog, the Iambic Cafe, has taught an online course in urban agriculture and food security for St. Lawrence College, and has a master's in food culture and communications from l'Università degli Studi di Scienze Gastronomiche, <laughs> which I've probably said completely wrong. <laughs> Very close to right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rona, you are, or have been, primarily for the last many years, and over a number of books, a poet. Yes, that's right. And so it seems your writing focus has shifted. And how and why did that come about? I started to think about doing more prose writing. I think when I started thinking about freelancing, uh, which was probably back in 2005, 2006, I had taken a bit of a sabbatical while my parents were aging. Um, I'd come back to Canada from England where I'd been living. And so I hadn't really worked in an office so much for the intervening years and I thought I would like to freelance and uh, I tried to think of what subject would interest me over the long term and food seemed like a really good subject because I'd always liked food a lot and I'd worked in kitchens all the time when I was going through university and to an extent after that as well so um, that was how I ended up going to Italy to do the course it just sort of happened along at the right time when I was thinking of focusing my skills a bit more on this area of food. And I was always writing poetry, and I went over there thinking, well, I'll come back and write food poetry mm -hmm. and then write other stuff for money. But I did do some food poetry writing, but the prose kind of took over, I guess, for a while. I was doing the blog all the time I was away, and it was increasingly about food and less about poetry. And it seems like you've become really committed and dedicated to not just the writing part, but just the very idea, sort of the philosophy of sustainability and growing your own food and food security. Is that something that sort of came to you newly, or is that did that tap into something that was already in you, that sort of deep commitment to those ideas? Well, I think we're all evolving in our knowledge about food today. And it started for me just before I went to Italy. I'd written a couple of articles for Food in Canada, which is a trade publication. And I think those first two articles were about the loss of chicken slaughtering facilities on the island. And uh, the other one was about the merger or the takeover of Island Farms Co-op right. by a Quebec dairy giant. And so I was already thinking, whoa, there's something funny going on here. I thought I was just going to write nice articles about food and, you know, go and taste it and everything. And then when I went to Italy, I, it was, the university is actually owned by Slow Food, so they have an agenda. 
but they also brought in people from all around the world who told very similar stories about what was happening to our food supply. And when I came back, I didn't know who I was ever going to be able to write for because I knew all the big food people, all the big food companies who could afford to pay writers well were, uh, well, I think they had uh, sinister agendas, really, mm-hmm. where our food is concerned. So it's it's been a, a growing thing. I came back and I started volunteering at an organic farm and I got more involved in a community food security group. So those things have helped me really build my knowledge a lot and my experience with food. And also with local organizations who are like-minded and also dedicated to it. Reading your book, one of the things that jumps out is how many little things are going on. And it's so great to have somebody like yourself writing that book to say, hey, in your community there's this, 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 and Mm -hmm. this, and go out and find and where you can fit in. Is that one of the things that you hope to share with people at the symposium? Yeah, and I think my fellow panelist Kimberly is planning to do a lot of that too. But yeah, I mean... I seem to be endlessly going to, you know, food talks and panels and workshops and I still feel like I hardly know what's going on in this town because it's everywhere and in many different forms, which I think is tremendous. But even so, if you go to the grocery store and stand in line to the checkout and look at the baskets of the people ahead and behind you, you kind of wonder where their head is, you know, because people are still buying really bad food and our grocery stores are still selling really bad food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, sometimes I wonder, you know, is it a legislative thing? What is going to change? Yeah. I mean, well, the big wrangles, I mean, there are a number of really big wrangles, but where shopping is concerned, it's all over price. And how do you convince somebody who doesn't have very much money that they should buy good quality food for a bit more and not just buy only on price point, it's a very hard argument to make. Mm -hmm. But all of us who have a bit more money are also, you know, needing to to really rethink what we're doing with our food dollars, because every time we buy bad food, we're supporting usually a multinational corporation that is producing that bad food just to make more money. And we should be supporting the kinds of companies that are actually producing good food and want to do it in a sustainable way. And that often means buying as much as you can from your local farmer or growing some of it yourself and just, you know, cutting some of them out of it. Mm -hmm. And the panel is called the new food writing. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the food component, but there's also the writing component. How would you define food writing as a genre? Well, it's quite a big one. I guess every genre, you know, is pretty big. But, I mean, food writing, when you say you're a food writer, people think you just go to restaurants. and Uh, Yeah, you're a reviewer or something. Yeah, Yeah. so it does include that kind of writing. But it also includes writing recipes, Mm. which, you know, a lot of people don't think about. But I think increasingly today, and the kind of writing I'm really interested in, it tends to be a little more politicized and... You know, the writers I really admire are people like Michael Pollan here and Felicity Lawrence and Joanna Blythman in the UK, who are really conscientious journalists, but they Mm. they write well, but they really want people to understand what they're being sold in the way of food. So I would say my, you know, model is somewhere between Michael Pollan and MFK Fisher. So you've got content, but also some, some humor. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't think you convince anybody by just telling them all the bad stuff all the time. Tempting though that becomes. <laughs> so just, and as much know. as we need to hear it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, do you know what I just found out? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's terrible. 
you just don't get invited out for dinner anymore. If you do that. So <laughs> you have to be able to work something hopeful into it. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, when I think about other genres, and you know, we have our sort of fiction. You talk about plot and character in food writing. I mean, how do you structure that? What is your entry point for you? It's sort of philosophical or political. Mm. Yeah, well, it can be just about anything. I mean, the book I just wrote was a manifesto, Mm -hmm. so that was an interesting challenge. What is a manifesto, and how do you relate that to food and urban agriculture? So that was quite an experience. But now I'm working on some essays about food, and so that takes a whole other rethink. And I guess I'm kind of working from a meditative point of view, but... There'll be meditations with some politics, and I hope some humor built into them as well. I enjoy my food, and I'd like people to enjoy my (laughs) writing, too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And do you think you will write food poetry? Yes, I've actually... You have. Yeah, I've published a couple of chapbooks about it, Mm -hmm. Um, one of them from Leaf Press a couple of years ago. Um, And I think there are still a lot more things that could be interpreted that way. There are all kinds of ways of looking at the world, and uh, poetry is one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was thinking about when reading your sort of biography is, what is food culture? Because culture, we tend to think of it as involving the arts and, and creativity, but food culture, sort of how does that term associate? These are sort of two words that I don't necessarily always think of together, but it seems to be more and more mm. a term. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably hard for North Americans to grasp as a term because we don't really have one, <laughs> or n- not one that we should be poutine. proud of. <laughs> okay, poutine. And um, I don't know, you know, we're in the fast food culture. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, food and culture probably aren't really supposed to be together in that world. But for other longer-lasting cultures, food is an integral part of who you are. There are national dishes, there are religious dishes, there are ways of eating that are culturally appropriate. And so when I did the program, it was about some of that. It was taught in Italy, so we learned a lot about Italian food culture and about well, Southern European food culture as well, and things that are quite different from here. But, you know, we are a country of immigrants, so people Mm -hmm. do bring their food culture with them. It just gets changed a bit and, I think, watered down a lot of the times when it's made accessible to the wider population. It's about kind of generic food here. Mm -hmm. So we don't want anything that's too spicy or too this or too that. It's got to be something that's not going to offend palates, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, purists who want to eat, uh, let's say, Thai food or or Mexican food because they've just come back from those places will be disappointed when they eat it here because it can't really be that way because the culture here isn't accustomed to eating that kind of food. Hopefully there is still hope for us to develop a food culture. Hopefully yeah. you will maybe you can encourage your panelists to bring recipes for us and sort of educate not just our minds, but our palates as well. Well, I think, you know, we haven't talked about it, but we do have the edge on the other panels in that we could bring, you know, food to lure people in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll be going, (laughs) for sure. Well, thank you so much, Rona, and I do look forward to going, so now I'm even more enticed, and hopefully our audience will be as well. Okay, thanks thanks so much. 
Wordstall's collaborative conversation continues with the panel In Our Names, Writers on Poverty. And it's sponsored by the Victoria Writers Festival, which has rebounded to everyone's great joy. And the panel features Patrick Lane, Sylvia Olson, and the 2012 Butler Prize winner, Madeline Sonic. And Sarah Cassidy, who's with us, is the artistic director of the Victoria Writers Festival, as well as a fiction and nonfiction writer herself, and is the organizer of the panel. So, welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Amy. That was lovely. So, tell me about the title of this panel, Why in Our Names? Well, because when we talk about child poverty, we often think we're talking about other. But, of course, we're talking about ourselves, too. The policies that create child poverty are also the same policies that actually benefit us, if we can say us are the non-poor in this example. So it is in our names. It's our government, it's our community, and again, who benefits from our resources equals who doesn't. And the other two panels in the symposium are about specific genres, fiction, food writing. This panel is sort of multi-genre, and yet it sort of gets its own panel. So why did you feel that this was a topic that really merited, as an issue, its own panel at the symposium? Well, the genre could be seen to be fiction in the sense that our government has um, what are called fairy dust policies, <laughs> where we sprinkle a little money on families and mm-hmm. um, in the shape of a child benefit, monthly child benefit of something like $100 a month, and say, here you go. But what we do need to do is actually pool our resources. So there are certainly fictions. And another great fiction with child poverty is this narrative that the poor will always be with us, mm-hmm. that taxes are a burden and that again poverty is due to some moral failing or personal choice so I'd like to look at that as perhaps our defining structure but truly we have three writers who are extremely accomplished so I don't think we can call accomplishment a genre but Mm -hmm. they're accomplished (laughs) unfortunately in their experience of poverty We wouldn't want anyone to be accomplished in that. But they're accomplished, of course, as writers and as very careful and thoughtful writers who indeed flesh out the facts and the stats and create characters that make us realize that, first of all, poverty is not entirely defining of who we are. But second of all, that people who are poor have, are challenged resource-wise, have, you know, are, of course, as complete and entire and have as rich a memory, as rich a history. They're full, and good writers can give us a full character. So we have on this panel Patrick Lane, a longtime poet, uh, Governor General's award-winning poet. Um, he's been writing poems since 1960, and many of them reflecting his childhood growing up in deep poverty in Okanagan. And later, uh, more recently, he turned to nonfiction and fiction. So his memoir and his fiction to look at his growing up and raising young children in circumstances of violence and drunkenness and deaths, his brother's premature death, uh, his father's murder, and his own despairing alcoholism. He has some interesting things, very interesting things to say about poverty in his own life and in the lives of others. I hated the rich, he said. And I was envious, he said. I wanted that for myself. I used to go with a knife up to the neighborhood in Vernon where the rich people lived. I'd go down the blocks and the alleys and I'd slash the tires of all the rich kids' bikes. I was enraged and I hated these rich kids. They had everything. There was a profound hatred and I desperately wanted to be there in their world of privilege. And certainly, you know, Patrick was angry 
for a long time until he traveled and discovered compassion, mm -hmm. which he called only the beginning of suffering. So, you know, um, just reading that quote says so much more than I'm able to say. <laughs> and this is why we have writers coming together, not only to read their work, but to speak afterwards and interview about their experiences and about their thoughts on poverty. Another writer coming is Madeline Sonic, whose memoir and essays, Afflictions and Departures, is just gut-wrenching, painting her childhood in a dysfunctional family, which struggled and tried to satisfy the social and economic ambitions um, of the 1950s and 1960s. And she's got a very interesting take on child poverty. She did leave that family at an early age. And she sent me a note today that says, you know, I hope my position on childhood poverty isn't too anti-theme. I don't think the lack of material resources is a huge problem for children, but I think our society's materialistic focus is. When I think of an impoverished child, I see in my mind's eye children from wealthy families mm -hmm. who have every material advantage but don't have a real relationship with too busy parents. I also think of impoverished children as those who haven't been encouraged to think for themselves. So certainly this panel will break open our notions of poverty. And there's another way of saying in our names, and another way of drawing those lines. Poverty has many definitions, and it certainly isn't simply material. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine the panel will be dealing not just with the issues of poverty, although it will do that and give information and sort of educate us a bit about what's going on. I know that BC has the great distinguishment <laughs> of be having the second worst child poverty mm -hmm. in Canada. But I imagine the panel will also be about the role of art in portraying poverty and what it can do for people. Is that something that you envision coming out of this panel? Oh, definitely. Creative writers carry us beyond the statistics. Again, they bring dignity, not just to the people and the circumstances of poverty, but to the issue itself. Dignity meaning that it is debatable. It is something to be discussed. Um, it's layered and it's problematic. Again, it's not just a, a choice. It's not just something like the, the poor will always be with us. You know, good writing will make us realize what is always with us and also what can certainly change. And also just simply giving voices to that's what Sylvia Olson, our third writer, has done, anthologized the voices of young teenage mums and painted deep portraits of children who were sent to residential schools, for example. Yeah, the different definitions of poverty, being starved of our family, of our culture, and certainly what these different topics will mm -hmm. be tossed around. Mm -hmm. And so as a writer yourself and as a parent... And someone who has traveled internationally, you volunteer as an international witness to mine refugees returning to their Guatemalan villages. Where did this passion, this commitment to this issue come from for you personally? Well, my commitments are to both literature and, I suppose, social justice. I grew up in a middle-class family. I'm now a single parent of three children. I, again, yes, you're right, I traveled in Guatemala and worked with refugees there um, and certainly learned uh, very quickly after many years of polemic politics in um, on the left and a far left in Montreal you know it was both refreshing and devastating to actually be in Guatemala and see uh, the layers again of people's lives the moving forward despite in spite and because of their histories mm -hmm. and laughing it's as simple as that despite not really eating 
very mm-hmm. well. So, you know, there's a fulsome to the life. But reading Meg Tilly's book, Singing Song, her memoir of growing up in Vancouver Island, mm. was a huge impetus for this panel. It's something that we do too easily ignore and forget about. Also reading Grace Paley, one of my favorite writers, Taya Ulbricht, how their laxness, even Dickens, the different ways that, you know, activism and writing um, mm-hmm. don't go together very easily. And I think these three writers that will be part of the panel somehow manage to turn the politics inside out so they're invisible. Mm. You know, Dickens, you sort of know that there's an intent there. Yeah. But this is very graceful. It's heartfelt first. The, the, there was no point first. That's probably... Right. Yeah, these are human stories first, and then perhaps an agenda sort of attaches somewhere along the way or can be inferred, but mm-hmm. yeah, these are mm-hmm. you know, human beings sharing very human stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as you say, it's uh, one in six children in this province is living under the poverty line, which we know is already set too low. And the impacts are enormous from um, higher rates of anxiety and depression in teens to all the way to higher rates of heart disease and stroke. And the stress, as a single mother, I'm lucky. I have, you know, family that can bail me out if things get really tough. I know that's there. But I know single moms experience, as single parents, a lot of anxiety around trying to um, preserve almost the, again, there's the fiction, the fiction that mm-hmm. we're just fine. We're, we're the above. best place on earth. you got to be yeah, here. That's right. All the slogans. That's right. You're in the soccer club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just notice that. Yeah. Don't, don't notice that your room needs painting. Yes. You're outside playing soccer all year round in this beautiful <laughs> province. So that's stressful too. These myths and so, Madeline Sonic's work speaks to that too. The myth of what the family's trying to preserve and pretend. But the realities of our lives can be much harder mm-hmm. than is seen. And art is one thing that can help make it better, not just for the people creating it, but for the people who get exposed to it, who are lucky enough to be able to read it and hear about it at the panel. So yes. hopefully it will inspire changes in thought, but also perhaps some people to write their own stories. Yes. And your question is a good one. How do we make the connections? I'm not absolutely sure. <laughs> and that's, again, another reason to have this panel. We had a very successful panel on ecology at the festival in the fall. So I am not sure how it will go together. Um, we <laughs> definitely have a range of voices. And their take on poverty is, each individual take is different from the other. So that's the excitement, how this will come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I had put in my article for Focus that one of the greatest resources we have in the world is one another. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's really our greatest wealth is is each other and so that's definitely what the symposium is all about and definitely what this panel is all about too mm-hmm. so thank you so much for coming in and hopefully uh, we'll get a good audience to come and share some ideas imbibe the wine of each other's thoughts mm-hmm. thank you Amy thanks Yes, thanks very much, Sarah, and thanks very much, Amy. And thanks to our other guests today, John Gould and Rona McAdam. And for more information about the symposium and the Malahat Review, please visit www.malahatreview.ca.